Hey, this is John Fole, and I'm a, a guitar player, songwriter, and singer, and all-around musician from New Orleans, Louisiana, and this is the Talkin' Blues Podcast. When does one become a New Orleans musician? Because I know you didn't originate that. So I, I, I wonder at what point when you move there, you think, I, I'm now a New Orleans musician. Well, I guess, <laughs> I don't know. For me, probably uh, um, being here through and after Katrina. And that was 2005. I'd been here nine years at that point. Um, and... I don't know. It was, you know, it's a funny thing because, um, yeah, is that is that something that we should do? Is you know, move somewhere and call ourselves, you know? But, um, you know, the thing for me, I guess, is um, I've always been a pretty New Orleans centric performer, and my music is, you know, I've always, you know, that's what brought me here was New Orleans music, and um, I've been lucky enough to play new orleans music with you know as many of the founders and architects that were that that were left you know as time has gone on so um i don't know yeah funny should yeah maybe i shouldn't even ever call myself a new orleans musician well but, but i do <laughs> i i think i think anybody who's played with dr john and was officially in his band would qualify as a new orleans musician immediately all right. Well, you know, there's that too. But yeah, that was yeah, that came along in 2002. So yeah, I'd I'd, I'd been here five or six years at that point. Um, I want to get to more of that and why you moved here. But let's start at the beginning. Tell me how Great. music came into your life. Well, um, I grew up in a really small town in eastern Montana. Uh, really, the you know, West Dakota, if you want to call it that, way out the way out in the middle of nowhere, really, and a really beautiful place in a lot of ways, but pretty desolate in a way. So, yeah, I guess you know, music found me the way it did any any kid, like through my older brothers and stuff. I, you know, I was born in the mid '60s, so my older brothers, you know, both had like high school bands that they put together to play you know, Louie Louie and Gloria and stuff that was easy to play and <laughs> popular in the mid-late 60s. And so um, when I was really little, there was stuff around, you know, there was drums in our basement and, um, you know, some guitars around and we had a piano in our living room. And, and you know, so I, yeah, I was real just drawn to it. And, you know, it's what my older brothers were kind of doing. So it seemed cool to me. And, um, you know, of course, they didn't really stick with it and went on to just do other stuff. But for me, it was more of a, of a, you know, this is what I'm doing. You know, what what made you think that? What made you decide that this is what I'm going to do? Uh, you know, I'm not really sure, but um, you know, it just seemed it just seemed to be a determination for me. You know, it's like, um, you know, my brother gave me a guitar, and you know showed me a few things and so by the time I was nine ten years old you know I was 
playing, you know, I was, I was able to play stuff. And by the time I was, you know, so I'd, you know, I've been playing with some friends and stuff. There was other kids in school, you know, and stuff. And then, um, you know, by the time I was like, I guess 13 in between sixth grade and seventh grade or no, I guess between seventh grade and high school. That's what it was. Seventh and eighth or eighth grade in high school. That's what it was. And I was 13 and there was guys in our, in our little town that had that, you know, had been away to college and came back for the summer and put together a little band to play at the local bars and at some local parties. And, um, you know, they wanted a second guitar player and, um, you know, somebody told them about me and the guy came over and listened to me play and said, Hey, you want to join our band? And so, you know, here I was playing with these 22 year olds and, and, you know, they showed me a lot and I was like, you know, that sealed it further. You know, I was like made a little money and, uh, before I was even in high school. And, um, so, you know, I was like, this was, this is the way to go. It seemed like, so, you know, of course then they went back to college and I went to high school and, found you know found the guys in high school who were players and and we started a little band and how much exposure did you have to live music other than your brother's band or local <laughs> oh, bands man very 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 little um there was just so little live music where i grew up and um it was you know there was so little of it that when a band or somebody did come to play in our town for a wedding or for the prom or for something like that, you know, it was a, you know, for me, it was a, a big deal. I'd go hang out and try to like, you know, meet them and get, you know, get a lesson or something or get some tips. Um, you know, I'd just go hang out and, you know, they're unloading the trailer. Hey man, can you show me something on the guitar? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the first big concert that you went to see and what impact that had on you? Yeah, it was uh um <laughs> my brother and sister uh who were uh, quite a bit older than me um and I was uh I think 15 at this time so I was you know probably a sophomore in high school. Um they took me to Billings, Montana, which was a you know a 4-hour drive or something to see um Eric Clapton nice and, um yeah and um well they took me to two concerts there was that one and and um and then the other one was um the Marshall Tucker band with the new riders of the purple sage wow <laughs> and you got to think this is probably 19 <sighs> it would have been probably 79 1980 maybe um and so, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was great. The, the Clapton concert, I was really disappointed. He barely played. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and I was, you know, I was like, yeah, yeah, I was meh. <laughs> but he had Albert Lee in the band, and, um, you know, they played in this, like, Metrodome kind of place. The sound was so terrible, you know, and we had just terrible tickets or whatever. But, uh, you know, it was just, they were, it was like watching little cartoons, and it sounded terrible. and. <laughs> And, you know, as far as what Clapton was doing at that point in time, it wasn't very exciting, you know, for me as a kid anyway. What about the Marshall Tucker Band? Um, It wasn't much further, you know, it was like uh, maybe a month later, six weeks later or something, the same summer. 
much more exciting to me in a way like we had well it sounded better and you know they seem to be having a great time you know and and what a guitar it's, player uh, yeah toy caldwell right yeah. yeah and um and you know truth to um that one my brother uh you know got me drinking <laughs> and so i was i was having a you know a much better time <laughs> as far as like you know concert vibes go and excitement and all that kind of stuff so so but as a young kid you said you know i I really want to do this what do you think you imagined that would be to be a musician well you know that's another thing that i got schooled pretty early that that there were you know other ways to to being a musician than just being in you know as to being a rock star or something it wasn't i was never after that i was always more interested in um rootsier musics you know i wasn't ever interested in what was on the radio or top 40 or anything other than to listen to it and say oh that's what it is but what really the music that really drew me in stuff was you know roots music and blues music and new when i when i got turned on to new orleans music certainly you know i felt like whoa you know there's that's i gotta go there and um give me an example who that would have been oh you know well Professor Longhair, um, and Dr. John, um, my brother, my oldest brother, who's you know seventeen years older than me or something, sixteen years older than me. So he, uh, you know, he came back and lived in our town for a while when I was in high school, and he would you know bring over a few records every week, and then you know leave them for a week, and the next week he'd bring over a few more and take you know. And so I got, yeah, he listened to a lot of great stuff and he turned me on to, you know, stuff. And so, yeah, I remember the, you know, the gumbo record for sure, listening to it. But it kind of like, it, you know, it, when I was, I don't know, it, it didn't knock me out as much as like, um, like I was really into Little Feet and uh, Lowell George and the, his solo record that he did. And he did all those Alan Toussaint songs. Right. Um, and I started to put that together, like, oh, you know, this is Alan Toussaint and, you know, all, and Irma Thomas and, you know, all the, I started to get all this information, you know, when I was probably in high school. And then a little later when I was in college and in a band that was traveling around the Rocky Mountains and stuff, I met a guy um, in Colorado one night. And, uh, you know, we were partying after our gig and he was also a musician and, and we were kind of, you know, trading stuff on the guitars. His name, he called himself Barbecue Bob and um, <laughs> really, really cool dude. And he told me about Snook Siglin. Hmm. And uh, I was like, "Who? I never heard of him. He said, give me, write your address down. I'm going to send you some stuff. And so, you know, a few weeks later when I got home, he had, he had sent me a cassette tape of Snook Siglin. And um, the tape was a 90-minute tape, and the first 45 minutes was was uh, Snooks, you know, in the in the radio station playing with Billy Dell, the, the DJ here in, or in New Orleans at the time, and they were, you know, he was playing his old records, and they were talking about him, and then you you know you turn the tape over, and it's Snooks live in the studio playing an acoustic guitar. And just, you know, they've got beers and they're, he's in the studio just playing songs. And it's just magic to me. I remember hearing it just going, this guy is still alive. Like, whoa. 
I've got to go see him, you know, and that was like the, that was the beginning of that kind of thing. I don't know what the music scene is like in Montana, or the, I guess the Rocky music scene, but at one point you decided to move to Oregon. Is that Portland? Is that where you decided to go? Well, yeah, I was in, uh, I'd gone to college in Missoula and then I dropped out of college and had, you know, was just playing music. In what were you going to college for? Um, mass communications, uh, radio and film. Okay. And, uh, you know, just, I was just kind of, I had moved to Missoula to get out of my little town and play music. And, um, cause there was a, a music scene there. There was, you know, bands and clubs, and parties and whatnot. So, yeah. So I lived there for four or five years and then, um, yeah, I moved to Eugene, Oregon and, uh, Portland first for a little bit for a, a few weeks, but, um, it it Portland was seemed really terrible. I hated it. Really. Hated oh, really? It. Yeah. And then, is this when you joined Cherry Pop and Daddies, or is that way? Well, after? I was a little later. I'd moved to Oregon in '87 and was playing, uh, you know, just playing whatever gigs I could. I played country music, and um, I was playing in a kind of a Louisiana band called the Etouffee Band that had a fiddle player and played you know, Louisiana kind of music and at parties and red, weddings and stuff. And I presume that was the direction you wanted to head. Well, sort of. I mean, I was, you know, I just was happy to be making a living, you know. I um, And even though I had, I had little jobs in Oregon, I had a job at a music store and a, a little job at a, at a community college for a little bit um, in their mass communication department. But you know, mostly I was playing gigs and, you know, of any kind. I was playing in a couple blues bands and I would do solo gigs and country gigs. And then, um, yeah, I joined the Cherry Poppin' Daddies when, you know, they were, they had just started. They had a guy that was playing the guitar, but he, he couldn't really commit to, to doing it full time. And they, they really wanted to, you know, conquer the world. So um, they talked me into joining the band. It was really fun for a few years. Yeah, it was great, but um, I, I, it really wasn't for me. You know, I was a little older than most of them, and it was just sort of like um, we were like a nine-piece band, so it was like you know, we were sleep, you know, getting two rooms and sleeping on floors, and you know, it was kind of rough. So, um, <laughs> I left. Be- I left before their good times started. <laughs> but the good times started while, but the music that they had that got recognized, you were involved in, was it? Were you not? Somewhat, yeah, because, uh, you know, the the thing, if you look at the record that they did, the um, that, that got real popular, that sold, I don't know, it's, I think it sold three million copies or something at this point, but um, uh, the Zoot Suit Riot. Um, Which the, is like a compilation. Greatest, it's called The Greatest Hits of the Cherry Pop and Daddies, and it, and uh, yeah, it's, taken stuff from their first three records and then they recorded they recorded songs to fill it out so it was because you know the the thing was the band wasn't really a swing band you know we had a a little swing element a couple of times you know there was a couple of songs on our first record that were swingy um, but most of the first record is like a rock record or uh, you know we, we were listening to you know Bands like Psycho Funkapus and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Faith No More, 
So it kind of had that kind of vibe to it. And then, you know, but we had a horn section, so there was these swingy songs. And then the same thing on their second record. You know, there's a few swing songs and the rest of it was kind of, you know, this kind of rock record. (laughs) And so, but, so when they got their record deal finally, I mean, they held out for a long time for a good deal. They, they turned, we, you know, we recorded for quite a while for, um, by different companies we got courted taken around and stuff so when they finally did their deal yeah they just they made a compilation they took stuff from the first three records and uh and you were gone by then i had been gone for a good little bit by then i had already moved to new orleans like it kind of said that you always attracted to new orleans music but what made you decide to finally make that move and and what did you expect out of that move yeah it's funny i um you know, we my I I hooked up with my wife in Oregon, um, and we just got really tired of the the weather and stuff there. Oh, that's my dog barking. What kind of dog is it? Oh, he's a. Uh, he sounds big. He's medium sized. He's about fifty pounds. Well, sixty pounds. He's a little overweight. He should be fifty <laughs> pounds. Um, he's kind of an old, uh, an old New Orleans pound mutt. <laughs> he's a good dog. But yeah, what did I expect? That's funny. Uh, like, I don't know how easy it is for a musician, especially for a musician to move to a new city, a new uh, city that you're not aware of, and, well, and especially a musical city, <laughs> and how do you establish yourself? Yeah, you know, that's it's interesting because it, 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 it just felt like falling into a big bathtub, man. It Like, I'm going to tell you, I... I you know, I visited here several times and, and had been on tour a couple times with different bands and had played here and stuff. So I was real, you know, I had an inkling I wanted to move here. Um, when my wife graduated uh, from college, we, in Oregon, we, we just, you know, we thought, well, we got to move somewhere. And we're like, because we were done with the Oregon weather, the Oregon winters were just wet and <laughs> nasty and gray. And so... We wanted to live somewhere south. We went to Austin for a minute and for you know a few weeks and spent time there and thought about moving there and um, we thought about Nashville and and we just kind of decided on New Orleans, you know, and and we both felt like well let's go try it out and, and I'm going to tell you we you know I had met a few people here so I knew I had a, f- a few numbers but um, so I had a friend help us. Uh, help us find a place to live so we'd have a place to land when we got here and so we had a you know we had a place and you know we're moving in with a truck you know a little moving truck and we backed it up and we're unloading it into this half of a double shotgun and there's a guy working on the other side you know the other he's doing some plumbing work and he's you know he's watching us unload and and he sees me got a bunch of guitar cases. This is my cat here trying to get in on this. He, he sees me with a bunch of guitar cases and stuff, and you know he strikes up a conversation. He says, "Hey, are you know are you you know you you just moving to town?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And he says, "Well, are you good? You know, can you could you play a gig? Could you play like a gig playing blues and New Orleans music and stuff without rehearsing?" And I was like, "Sure." And he's like, "Well, are you busy tomorrow night?" <laughs> And I'm not even kidding you. It was that. It was just like that. Wow. 
so this guy says you want a gig and so was was he a musician yeah he was a, a bass player and um you know became my first guy in new orleans i you know he got me on all his gigs um he was playing in a couple blues bands and with a a trumpet player and he you know you know it's like yeah wow friday i moved it was that was a thursday and friday night i was working <laughs> and um and you know i mean it didn't my calendar didn't fill up it wasn't like i was making a living or anything right away but um you know i was like i met guys right away um a piano player that i had had met you know on visits um i got in contact with him because you know he was really good his name was tom Worrell, and um tom got me on his gigs tom was playing at the time with this guy shebe kimbro edward kimbro who was who had you know was on the professor longhair records and um yeah and like and he was pretty elderly you know he lived in the gust housing projects and you know we'd go pick him up and help him with his drum set and stuff and um but man it was just you'd you'd play these you know if you played that music if you played some professor longhair music he it was just that pocket was undeniable you go oh (laughs) man it was so exciting to play with this cat it just knocked me out and i was like you know here i just moved here and i fell right in with this cat that was playing you know i mean i just felt like wow so um i don't know i guess that's i started calling myself a new orleans musician pretty quick <laughs> and and they welcomed you very easily that which is pretty neat yeah i mean i don't know what it's like to be a new orleans musician because i've heard various things um in some ways i think i've heard people talk about having to cater to the tourists and do certain types of music and 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 obviously the competition of all the different bands but how did you find that scene well um i mean there's certainly i mean i didn't ever find any competition and and um when i think about bands having to compete and struggle there's two there's only really two places that that's going to happen that's bourbon street and frenchman street and um, when I moved here, Frenchman Street didn't exist. I mean, there wasn't any music scene over there. There wasn't any clubs or anything other than Snug Harbor and the Dragon's Den, which was, an, an, you know, but there wasn't anything, there wasn't any scene on the street or anything like that. So, yeah, I felt fell right in with blues bands. You know, there was Bourbon Street work if you wanted it. Um, you know, but, got, you know, guys told me, pretty quickly it's like yeah you know that's that's work if you want it but you know there's better work you know you don't have to do that and when you say that um, do that what is that that's cover tunes well and- br- cover cover bands and long days um you know those bands will play seven sets Oof. sometimes and stuff like stuff like that so um frenchman street's not quite like that bourbon bourbon street's uh you know a little more entrenched in its old its old kind of feeling and stuff but um there's some great great bands i mean there's great musicians that just you know it's it's a it's one way to make a living in the city for sure and there's you know it's like i there's world-class musicians in some of those bands you'll go and you'll see oh that's the bass player for the sub dudes and you go oh that's you know it's like and so then frenchman street is a little different it caters more towards the traditional you know traditional new orleans scene and you, you know there's some original music over there some song, singer songwriter scene a little bit and um as far as making making a living at it 
over there on like on Frenchman Street, most of the clubs don't pay much, and so you're really stuck having to hustle the tip jar. And that's when you say having to cater to the tourists. That's when that happens. Right. You know, when it's just become a when it has to become a tip jar hustle. You know, if your band starts, you know, three months later, and you're you're doing a tip jar hustle every day, and and the music gets dumber for sure. So I, I wonder. So when you move there, and I guess you know, I guess the number one priority is just start gigging and getting work. Mm-hmm. But did you have a goal in mind as to what kind of musician you wanted to be and what you wanted to do with your career? Well, Mako, I've always been really, um, I've always been really lucky, feeling that I get to do a, a lot of different things. You know, like, like for me, New Orleans was was ended up being really perfect and I it fit right away because I was able to do all kind of different things you know I was able to play solo gigs speaking of um, which do you not have a solo gig that you do every Monday that I you do. have been doing since 1996 is that correct since 1997 that's right yeah yeah okay 97 yeah that's um, amazing I know it's it's funny <laughs> sometimes there's nobody there sometimes there's a big crowd it's funny yeah. like the jazz fest time it's you know there was the bartender was like wow i've never seen it so crowded and then you know then last week it's like the same bartender's like wow where was that crowd at <laughs> but to have a gig that long yeah is it's mind-boggling it's, yeah it's it's kind of great in a way you know i mean i i spent a lot of time on the road um where i'm not doing the gig you know and I, i'll have uh right you know you know, when I when I used to travel with Dr. John, I was sometimes only there, you know, twenty weeks out of the year. You know, now right. it's more like forty or forty five or something. But um yeah, it's a it's an it's an amazing thing to have a to have a place that people can find you. It's um I get people from all over the world find me there. You know, it's great. I can imagine. I, and you're doing your solo gig. Is that who you are? I know you play all sorts of different kinds of music and all different genres, and you've played with tons of different people. But if I said, who are you? Like, what kind of music do you play? Is that an, the essence of who you are? Um, I don't know. It's it's definitely a big part of it. You know, that's um, when I'm playing my own songs. Generally, I'm playing a solo gig, and I'm playing, um, you know, guitar stuff that I've you know been living with a long long time and stuff like that so I guess you know in a sense that it is for sure you know I'm sure people would say that you know um but as far as you know but yeah it's I I do equally as many gigs on the electric guitar and playing with bands and and I find a real uh it's you know it's just one of my biggest joys is playing with a singer songwriter who's got great songs and making those things sound good and come alive is that's just one of my favorite things you know is uh, working on other people's music and making it good well you work with so, Johnny Sansone and Anders Osborne two great songwriters yeah indeed <laughs> um, <laughs> how did how did the Dr. John thing happen so you were there for six, seven years. How does yeah? This... I was playing around. I did a, I did a session with uh, 
uh, Herman Ernest, the drummer that was in Dr. John's band at the time. And um, I did a record with him and George Porter and with, with this guy, Joe Crown, who's a, he was a organ player. And so it, it was a Joe Crown organ combo. And um, so that was when I, I met George um, that day and I, I had known Herman a little bit. We'd, we'd been on a few, you know, blues gigs, but um, they were just kind of weird throwaway gigs. And so um, the session was, you know, when I got to really know him um, and, you know, that session was really instrumental in a lot of ways. Cause like, you know, a few weeks after that, George asked me to sub for the guy in his band. And so, you know, I was, went and did a bunch of gigs with Porter's band. And um, a few weeks after that, Herman called me and said, Hey man, uh, the chair in Dr. John's band is opening up and I, I'm thinking about you. And um, so, yeah, it was a great session. <laughs> <laughs> how much, how, how difficult was it to get into doing session work when you moved to New Orleans? Um, well, uh, I mean, as far as, it's it's a funny thing I, I you know it's it's just kind of luck of the draw in a way like I it took a, quite a while but um you know there was one guy I met who who did a lot of he did a lot of stuff for movies and um radio advertisements and television advertising and that kind of stuff local kind of stuff so I, I met him and he hired me for a, a session and it was, you know, it was like a Whitney Bank thing, but it was like a big band, you know, it was like a horn section, a string section and a rhythm section and, a, you know, um, it was like a big session. And uh, for a for a bank commercial, I was like, wow. <laughs> um, but it was great. And I and, you know, and so he, you know, he got me a lot of work over the years in movies and stuff. And and, and you know, I ended up becoming real good friends with him and stuff um but he's since moved to nashville the last few years so i don't his session work's gone <laughs> do you do you read uh not very well i can i read uh yeah i read you know chord charts and stuff like that but as far as uh sight reading music and stuff not very well it takes me a long time so but you can fit into a session like that with a big band and not have any problems yeah, you know, yeah, I I can read enough to fake my way through and it it never it never really gets you know asked the you know there was I remember one movie thing that I got hired for that was real real heavy as far as like, you know, reading a score. Um and I was real nervous about it and had gotten the score ahead of time so that I could study it. But when I got to the session the 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 director guy was just like, Hey, so don't pay attention to the score. Just play this like a guitar player would, <laughs> you know, like a guitar player would, <laughs> you know, it's like, this is, this is what the computer, this is what the computer thinks a guitar player should play. Don't, don't look at that, <laughs> you know, play what a guitar player would play here, you know? And so the whole, you know, a lot of time you're just playing along with the band and doing what you would do on a gig. And so, um, and was it more commercial stuff and and soundtracks versus different artists? Um, yeah, there's and there's some there's some album work I've done a lot. I made a lot of records here over the years um, with different people. 
and people kind you know come to New Orleans to make records and um, stuff like that. But yeah, there's a uh, a fair amount of you know just all of it kind of pieces together. There's a lot of there's a lot more music for film and television here in the last in the last decade. I would say in the last 10, 12, 15 years, you know, there's a lot of it now that didn't exist before. So there's a lot more production for that kind of stuff here. But the a lot of it's smaller studios and stuff too. So as far as big studio sessions going, there's it's not very often anymore. But So Herman says you should try out for this gig with Dr. John. Um, what are you thinking? What happens next? Oh, Man, it it wasn't even really a well, I guess it was kind of a tryout thing, but it was kinda he just kinda slid me in there, man. He just <laughs> he said, Look, make me make me some stuff, make me a tape that I can play for Mac of some stuff you've done, you know? And so I did that and you know, handed it to Herman and he played it for Mac and then, you know, he called me a week later or something, said, you know, great, here's here's the calendar. Can you start on this date and I was like nope <laughs> I was like I had a solo tour that I was in Europe and I, I mean I really couldn't cancel it you know what I mean I really it was a whole tour of solo gigs and I was like well I said I could start you know <laughs> 10 days after that but I really I mean I explained to him why I said I can't you know I got a whole this tour booked and um and it was fine they the other guy who had been there Bernard Poche played you know, just a few extra weeks. So it was no big deal. But yeah, they let me slide right in there. So there was no um, audition process. It was based on the fact that you had a, you played with Herman a few times and... Yeah, there was no rehearsal. There was no audition, no rehearsal, no nothing. There was, you know, they sent me some... They sent me some uh, um, recent live shows. You know, so they had their sound guy record some live shows and he sent me, you know, three or four of them. And you know, when as soon as I got off the phone the first time with Herman and he asked if I could do the gig, I was like going. I started learning the catalog, you know. And it's quite um, an extensive catalog. Oh yeah, and this yeah, and that's funny too. But but yeah, so I you know they gave me some stuff to learn, and uh, you know we flew out. The first gig was at a club called the Conduit in um, what's that? What's that town? Oh, some. One of those New Jersey towns, one of the real, one of the real ugly ones. <laughs> I can't remember, it. but anyway, it's probably um, a good thing you don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the yeah the first gig was at this. It was like a rock club, and it was, um, you know, I guess it was like a little audition. They had a four, it was a four gig run. You know, like a Wednesday through Saturday, little run through these little little clubs and theaters up on the East Coast, and um. And, you know, the first gig was, you know, we had a little sound check that maybe lasted 45 minutes. We ran over a few endings, you know, and a few, in, you know, just to make sure I was, I had listened to the stuff and was, you know, was going to be fine. And, and before the gig, Mac called me in my hotel room and he said, I got a good feeling about this. <laughs> and did you have and, a good uh, feeling about it? Oh, I was psyched. Yeah, I was super psyched. I was like, I'm going to have, I got a real job, you know, like I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I might be able to buy a car. 
that's what it felt like. I was like, I just felt like, man, I'm, I've, uh, I've got a real job now. Like, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to show up dressed nice and sober. <laughs> so you were confident. Like you were, con- yeah. I, at this point, you're a confident player. You know that you belong here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. After the first, really, after the first couple gigs, it was like everybody, all their crew and everybody fit, said, yeah, hey, just great. Perfect. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. And they, you know, they line, you know, sent me the schedule and said, uh, make sure your passport's good and you've got a big suitcase. And and so that would have been like the, would have been the Creole Moon tour? Is that around that yeah. time? Yeah, exactly. They were, they were touring behind Creole Moon. And um, right right after I joined the band, right like the same time I joined the band, he was putting together the deal to make uh, Nolan's Dis Dadder to Utter. And, um, Which is a superb record. Yeah, and it was, uh, yeah, he got back together with, uh, um, um, God, I'm so bad with names anymore, um, the producer. It was the same guy that did uh, going back to New Orleans. Oh, okay. And um, there was a big budget, big budget record. They had a they had a budget, and they got. I mean, it's oh, it's so good. It, everybody's on there: Smokey Johnson and um, Mavis Staples, uh, William Nelson, yeah, Baby King, yeah. I mean, were you involved in all of that? Um, I got to go do a session. Yeah, he. Um, like I said, I just, I mean, that was literally, uh, you know, in maybe six, eight weeks after I joined the band, they were making that record. And so I wasn't scheduled to be on the record, but Mac got me on there. And, you know, that's just cause Mac was so cool like that. He just wanted to, you know, he said, you know, get this guy, have him come and play. And so, you know, they had me come and do an overdub session. I spent maybe four or five hours there um played on you know five or six songs i think so how long does it take you to think i'm part of this band that was probably it you know when he had me in the studio and he didn't have to you know what i mean like it was, it was already it was already kind of a done deal and so right. that's when i thought oh he likes me man he wants me here and th- when you saw okay so when you join a band with a legend like him does anybody tell you what you shouldn't shouldn't do are you talking musically yeah musically nobody said anything (laughs) Um, and so you're just taking your cues every night on stage based on what mac tells you if you're taking a guitar solo you'll just point to you because i mean i presume that even though you rehearse these songs are never played the same twice well pretty much yeah i mean the so yeah, like I said, you know, they gave me some shows to learn. And so, um, you know, I learned like, you know, those three shows pretty well, you know. And so after the first night, we played that club, the Conduit Club in, uh, I'll remember the town in New Jersey <laughs> at some point. But um, we were driving the next day to the next the next town, the next gig. And um, Mac, you know, had a a sheet that the tour manager had made for him on his computer of 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 his whole book of all the song all the records all the songs you know in a in an order you know it was like a pay there was 300 some songs or something so he you know he handed that to me he said he said we don't do very many of these but 
you know, mark the ones you know. Um, and so when I'm making the list, you know, I, I can I can pull stuff out and um, <laughs> and you know I marked a lot of songs. You know, I marked a lot, a lot of songs because you know a lot of it was classic song, a lot of it was you know American songbook songs. A lot of it, you know, stuff you know, and and um, a lot of it was classic New Orleans stuff. A lot of, you know, and and then all his records, of course, and stuff. But so, you know, I I like to think that I had a, a little hand in making his book grow because they had they had had you know in the years before me, the book had shrank as far as like older stuff. You know, they they would make a record and add songs from that. And you know, play Ico Ico, and you know the the same things every night, and then add some of the new songs. And so that's what they were doing. It, and and so the book was pretty. You know, by the time I had been there a few years, the book was like three hundred songs. <laughs> and we we did tours where we went through the book. Wow. You know, um, we did a tour once in England with a band. There was a we had an opening band on the on these like fifteen dates, which was kind of rare. It usually different. There would be different bands, but Max Record Company or something had some hookup with these guys. And they anyway, they were in a little van opening for us every night for like fifteen dates. And on the second day, one of the guys commented to Mac that, "Wow, you guys played a way different set than you played last night." And and Mac, like, I was just saw him. He took that as a challenge. And so every, <laughs> every day on that every day on that tour we did a different a different show. Different opener, different closer, different you know, the whole show completely different. Okay, so what does just, that do? Just to blow just to blow those kids' minds. Because they were like they were like twenty, twenty years old. And Mac wanted to like school him. It's like, all right, this is what this is what we can do. This is what the pros can do. <laughs> so what does that do to you as a musician playing on stage with them? Does it keeps you on your toes and does it make oh, you play yeah. better? Yeah, you'd get the set list in the afternoon, you know, and then have, you'd go, oh, what's that song? You know, you'd have to go to the book <laughs> or go to the, you know, go to YouTube <laughs> and go find it, you know, like, oh, oh, what's that song, you know, and how's it, you know, we'd have to talk about the endings, We, you know, the band would, you know, get together before the gig and say, okay, this, how's this ending go, and stuff like that, so. And and, and literally, there is a book on his piano with all the lyrics, because well, he was concerned about not remembering lyrics. Yeah, they did that, every day they'd put, you know, they'd line up the, yeah, his, his, his lyrics for him in the book, and um, yeah. There was a lot of gigs we'd do, yeah, where we'd go through that. We'd play these jazz clubs sometimes. There was one in Seattle that we'd play, um, you know, every year, every other year or something. And we'd play two shows a night for a week, and we'd go through the book. He'd go, he'd dig out, you know, chestnuts. It's great. It's just awesome. I used to. That was my favorite part of the whole thing. It was like, oh man, it's all, look at this song. And I, you know, I've, it made us feel really great as a band. We'd always, you know, we'd say, "Wow, well, this band could fucking play anything." 
because um, we'd play you know rock and roll and jazz and blues and all of it all of it right on what did you learn from that experience um i learned a lot about music i learned a, a really a lot about i think um when i look at it in retrospect because it's been like 10 years now or whatever but i really like you know i knew i knew a, a good bit of music before that but coming out of that i feel like i i learned a lot about music hanging out with that guy for 12 years soaking that up as i feel like i there's a a whole a whole side of stuff that that i never you know there was no way i would have known that any other way other than coming through that you know there's just a way you know certain ways that i put things together now musically it's certain turnarounds and stuff that that i just go oh yeah that's i stole that from mac or whatever or or from that band or um yeah can you give me a sense of who mac was to you uh, i i'll just share the fact that i i got to work with him a little bit and when i first met him he scared the hell out of me but he turned out to be one of the most generous persons i've met and when i think about the highlights of all the people I've worked with and or got to interview, um, he certainly is in the top three. And I, I feel like I was so fortunate to meet him and just how generous he was. I think I've told the story a few times, but he was the first musician after the interview to ask me about my family. Yeah. And, and right. he was not, like, it just surprised me. But because, and not not that anybody should ask me, but he, he was very... Um, he really wanted to know. He wanted to know about my dad. He wanted to know about my mom and how they were doing. And it it was surprising to me yeah. because of who he was and whatever. But he took interest and I got to see him a few times afterwards. And I just thought he was such an amazing human being. Who who was Mac to you? Well, I, you know, I've, I feel really fortunate to have gotten to know, you know, the Mac who, you know, when I got to know him, he was... Um, you know, 13 years clean, I guess. And so he, you know, he was, you know, reflective on, on his previous life. And, uh, you know, like I, I, I guess there, there must've been scary. There must've been a real scary Mac. Um, but I'm glad I never really knew him. You uh, know, did you ever read um, his biography? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. It's and, a good um, read. And, you know, he, he had plenty he had a lot of stories and there you know there was a lot you know the yeah you know mac we you know it, yeah people forget that he was a you know he did a lot of he did a lot of bad stuff to a lot of bad people so you know there was complications in human beings like always but like I said, I got to know him at a time when he when he was just a really warm and generous guy. He, you know, I I, I feel like I was there at a pretty good period musically for him. Um, he, you know, I made five or six records. You know, he wrote. He was still writing. He he wrote. He was still angry. You know, about stuff about the world and. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm glad I got to know the that Mac. He was he was a good guy, man. He was, uh, 
uh, musically, man, he he looked out for us on so many levels, man. He would, you know, he, like, here's a generosity guy. Like, there were there were tours. There were some lean times, for sure. Like, 2007, 2008, you know, the, the crash and everything. I mean, that touring was just really horrendous back then. It was just, you know, and, you know, he to keep the band together, man, he was doing... He was taking gigs and and doing stuff where I guarantee you we were making more money than he was. Um, and he would do that, you know. He would go just to keep everybody together, you know, keep everybody working, man. Keep his crew, you know. He was always worried about making sure the crew was was taken care of, and um, you know, not just the band and stuff, but you know, if he ever got a session when we were on the road, you know, if he if we were going to England and he and he got, you know, somebody call him to do a session, he would he would always get the band. He said, You gotta have my band. I'll do it, but you gotta have my band. You gotta pay them too. <laughs> One of those sessions was a session with Klaus Foreman. Yeah. So yeah. the side man becomes a front man or whatever it was called. Tell me what they're was, what was the, that like? They're that? called the uh oh man, um Klaus, that was a great little little hookup. <laughs> Um, Klaus is so cool, man. Was such a great dude. He he really wanted Mac to play on that um, a sideman's journey project oh, that he right. was doing because it was he was going around to all the guys that he'd played with in his life and and had a lot of you know and his friends and stuff. And he and Mac had had been friends in the seventies and had done a lot of session work with Harry Nilsson and stuff like that. So, um he really wanted Mac to play on this record. And so he came, he came around to this gig we were doing in Hamburg and he came to the gig and I, I was actually opening the gig solo that night. And so I, you know, I played my little set and then I came back and there's Klaus in the dressing room and that's where I met him. And, and, you know, he really liked, he was like, Oh, that was great. You know, I really loved your show. And, and then he told me who he was. He's like, I'm Klaus Foreman. And, and I was just like, <laughs> man, wow. And so anyway, we did our set with Mac. And then afterwards, uh, the, you know, Klaus had the studio booked for the middle of the night in Hamburg because, you know, he was really hoping Mac would go and do this session. And Mac was not really feeling it. He was, um, he was, you know, had tired. Now we'd done the show and we had to travel again the next day. And so, you know, Klaus was kind of waiting around the hotel after the gig and um, our tour manager's kind of trying to make it happen because he's like, you know, this is Klaus. He's been, he's really been trying to make this happen. So anyway, you know, we he goes and talks to Mac and, and Mac says, okay, I'll I'll do it. And, and, um, and Mac called me up and said, hey man, would you mind coming along and just, you know, hanging out so, you know, so I have somebody there. Um, and so I went along with him and I was just kind of, you know, going to be a fly on the wall, but Klaus said, Oh, why don't you play? Why don't you play? There's some guitars there in the studio. So I've ended up playing on the session there. And, um, you know, we did just one song. We played such a night, the slowest yeah. version ever. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then they did a little interview for the movie that came out about that. And then, I don't know, a few weeks later, maybe a month later or something, Klaus called me and said, Hey, I'm, 
finishing the record in Memphis next month, and I'm hoping you can come up and play on the on the last session. And so I, you know, it worked out with my schedule. So I took the train up to Memphis and and did a session up there with oh, it was great with Bonnie Bramlett and David Hood from the um, Muscle Shoals guys. And wow, it was a magic session. I thought it was just for me. It was just awesome. And then Klaus at the end of it. He's like, John, I have this song that I think I'm not really happy with the guy who sang it. I think you could sing it better. Would you mind singing it? And uh, so I made a he may have me make a pass at this song, and I end up singing on that record. So it's really fun, really great. Wow. Um, you talked about Dr. John's that he still had the anger, and one of the, if I'm not mistaken, one of the albums that he did, which still had anger, was what happened after Katrina. Tell me about the whole Katrina experience for you living in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, wow, it's pretty crazy. I was pretty lucky. Um, my house was mostly okay. And my job was still intact. I was still, you know, we still had gigs on the road. Um, yeah, I did, you know, better than everybody else in the band. Our drummer and bass player both lost their houses. Um, Mac didn't live here at the time, so. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, my house, my my little area was was, I mean, I had damage and whatnot, but no, I didn't get flooded out. I didn't lose all my, I didn't lose everything I own or anything. And were like you that. there? Um, we were off the road when it happened, but I, my wife and I and our dogs and cat and everything, we went to uh, uh, Auburn, Alabama first. Um, to a friend's house, and we rode the storm out there, and then you know we just figured we'd be going home afterwards. And then when we realized we couldn't, we uh, we got a somebody that uh, that gave us a place to live in Galveston, Texas, for a while. So we boogied over to Galveston and hung out there for a couple of months. Or my wife hung out there. I was playing on the road and traveling. Still, we played in Japan and all over the place during that time. But um, yeah, when we finally got to come home, it was about maybe two months two months later end of October and uh it was a mess <laughs> yeah I can imagine it was something so, to something to come home to there uh the city was um wow it took yeah it's 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 even hard to remember sometimes because it's it's there's already been a couple other hurricanes since then <laughs> but a lot of musicians moved out of New Orleans at that they point they did there's a lot that relocated there's you know, um, you know, people were so generous. You know, no, nobody did better during Hurricane Katrina than the musicians and the artists and stuff in New Orleans. We we got all the help. We got all the, you know, our fans took care of us. They gave us places to live. They brought us. Fans took people in, and you know, in in towns all over America. They gave them places to live and gigs. And, you know, that just didn't happen for most people. Yeah. So it's a very, very kind of weird thing. I, I always felt, you know, like, I don't know, it's a real weird thing when hurricanes, I always feel pretty responsible to stay. I'm an able-bodied human. I feel like I should stay because the only people that get help after a storm or get help from people that stay. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a weird thing. I yeah what does that experience how does that experience change you 
as a person. Hmm. Well, I think, yeah, I guess care a lot less about your stuff. I mean, I, I still had all my stuff, but I didn't care about any of it anymore. You know what I mean? Like nobody, nobody had anything, you know, I was, I gave away a lot of guitars afterwards and yeah, I don't, I, yeah, it's a tough question, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember talking to Alan Saint, and he said that in some ways that, and, and saying the same thing as you did, that the musicians benefited because people were so welcoming. And in some ways, his profile, I think he said that it went up because of it. Yeah, and the and his collaboration with um with uh yeah the English guy, uh, uh, Scott Costello. Yeah, yeah, it was a big deal for a few years afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, and I mean, on a, the musicians on the big level, of course, was just kind of whatever. But musicians, a lot of musicians on a small level, even, you know, just they, you know, they did better than their than their neighbors and stuff. And they'll, and they all tell you the same thing, you know, it's like, and most, most of them did what they could with, you know, with their donations and stuff. I know musicians that raised money for, you know, just for their neighbors to get new heaters and new air conditioners and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, it was a mess, man. Now, many, many years later, how different is the city? I actually haven't gone back since Katrina, so I have no idea, but it's a city I want to go back to. How different is New Orleans to you as a musician, wow. as somebody who lives there? And it, yeah, and then, you know, it's even different again. But um, I think after Katrina, there's, I don't know, there's this sort of, uh, I mean, there was a lot of sympathy for New Orleans, the Treme show, and all that, and and stuff. But there, but as, as you know, as far as like, and so there was a lot of people moved here. You know, a lot of a lot of people that you know, like, came to gut houses. A lot of church groups came here by the busloads to to gut houses and stuff, and. A surprising number of those people came and stayed and and came and became teachers um and so like there's a lot of a lot more young people there's a lot more young people vibrant I think the city's more vibrant in that way, but there's a lot of things that are getting lost you know the neighborhoods neighborhoods and culture and you know it's it's the same everywhere we lament that kind of thing, but it just happens it's just part of the deal it happens. You know, the city's been here a long time. It's changed a lot of times over the years. It'll change some more in the future. So that's that's part of the deal. But And, and musically, with all those musicians moving out, I don't know if they've come back, but has musically, is, is the city different? Musically, I think, well, the, yeah, the city's different. I don't know if it's a, you know, what we kind of give that, what's the reason for that if it's just Katrina or other stuff, but, um, you know, the, the, the one thing I'm seeing is that there are, you know, when I moved here, we, I walked among giants, uh, 
you know, Fats Domino was still alive and you, and Earl King was still alive. You could see or you could go hang with Earl King at the at the Tasty Freeze on Louisiana Avenue. He was there every day. You know, Alan Toussaint, you'd see him in the in the hardware store, you know, you'd you know what I mean? And yeah, so yeah. the Snook Siglin played every Friday night, you know. The So architects. you got to see him when you moved down there. Oh, yeah, I got to play with him. Oh, I got wow. to, okay. Yeah, man. Yes. So you know the and so I always the the thing now is like, I mean there are very few of these on this level of that age left. There you know Irma Thomas is still here, but like there are very few. You know, older musicians are just it's it's becoming a real problem, and uh, you know I don't there's there's some people out there taking their place, but it's that that's going to be lost. Yeah. You know, there's going to be a big gap in 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 who's who's filling their shoes. You know, we got Trombone Shorty, Troy Andrews, and you know, there's a few bands like that, John Grow. You know, um but who's take yeah, who's taking the shoes of these of these giants that that really made you know, worldwide impact on on the music scenes forever, historical impact. And um so, yeah. That's one thing I noticed that's a lot different. Um, I think the pandemic changed some things. I noticed, I mean, and this is just part of getting older too, but there's a lot of young musicians in New Orleans I don't know. I don't, you know, it's like I can't keep up. I can't keep up with them. I can't know them all. I can't go see them all. And so, like, I'm always constantly meeting people that have just moved here right um and i so i think there was a lot of uh you know pandemic um reshifting and people you know people use their unemployment maybe musician unemployment to move here and you know or something i don't know but it's there's a lot of a lot of people out that there's a lot of new people in town which which you know could be a great thing we'll, we'll hope we'll have to wait and see you know i guess it, it can be encouraging when you think that the people are still interested in seeking out music and in New Orleans and, and making music. Yeah. I'm, is it different for you to be making music in terms of are there... I know things are still this different because of the pandemic for everybody, but does it feel like it's come back and is your gig schedule as busy as it was a number of years ago? Well, you know, um, it's it's interesting and because I, I feel like, yeah, I mean... At this point in time, like this month, last month, the next few months, it feels like it's probably back to about what it would have been, what it would have been in, you know, 2019 or something. I have, you know, three or four trips this summer to go play places. And, you know, I didn't travel at all last summer to go play and or the last three summers, really. So but that's kind of on me, too. You know, I mean, I've, (laughs) I've had opportunities to go travel and I just didn't. Has it changed your opinion about traveling? That whole experience. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I've gotten out of the habit of of traveling. I don't. I've stopped traveling for a living. You know, when I left Doctor John's band, I mean, right. I've you know, there's always some traveling here and there. But as as far as like just living on the road, yeah, I'm, uh, there's no part of me wants to do that again. Um, but yeah, so yeah, my yeah, traveling to me, it's like. Eh. If I could, if I could play enough gigs right here in town and never travel, that would be great. But that's never going to happen. So, 
Yeah. Well, I know, but I can I can imagine that it it seems glamorous, and I guess at times it might be. But I I'm sure being on tour could get tiresome very quickly. Yeah. And well, you know, I mean, for some people it is glamorous. You know, um, <laughs> for for most of us it's not. For me, it's not. It it you know. Um, the level that I'm at right now or whatever, it's just, you know, uh, it's just going to work, you know, and uh, it's harder to go to work when there's an airport involved. <laughs> yeah. So I know you do, you're, I think, doing some gigs with Lynn Drury. I, I know you yeah, still yeah. work with Johnny Sansone, a number sure. of different people. Um, I noticed that you haven't really done a solo album in a long time. Yeah. The, my last one was... Uh, 2018 or whatever i guess um i've got uh songs and i've got uh i got a new guitar that i'm gonna make a i've got a so i'm gonna make a record i'm gonna make a solo record a real like acoustic acoustic solo-y record you know maybe some duets and stuff but yeah i've been trying to figure that out recently what does this what's the significance of the new guitar oh i had some I hate to use the word fans because I, it's just a weird word, but um, I had this this these people in Michigan that that they had a guitar that um, it was in their family. The guy's brother had had, and uh, it's a beautiful old Martin guitar from the '50s. And uh, they just they thought I should have it, you know. They they brought it down and and they thought you know you should be playing this and make music with this. So and it's amazing. It's wow. the holy grail of it's the holy grail of acoustic guitars. It's like if you had all the money in the world and went to buy one, this is what you'd go buy. And uh, did you yeah, know they, the they, moment you put your hands on it? Pretty much, man. I, I will say, you know, they we took it out the case. I mean, they, you know, we talked about it ahead of time, and they, you know, they knew what it was and had done their research and whatnot. But um, yeah, when we took it out the case and I played it, I just. I was like, "Yep, this is, this is why. <laughs> this is why they go into collections." Um, yeah, it's a be- beautiful instrument, and so yeah, I'm, I feel obligated to uh, to get some recording done with it. But uh, going into collection is not necessarily a good thing for a guitar, right? Guitars are made to be played, so when it's not played. It it doesn't really serve the function correctly. Am I correct yeah. in assuming that? Yeah, everything is like that. I mean, but you know, there's, I mean, there's just not enough people to play all the guitars that are made. I mean, I'm telling you, they <laughs> they make millions of guitars every day. Every day, there's millions of guitars being made in factories all over the place, and people are buying them and they're they're having them, and so there's way more guitars <laughs> <laughs> than than can be played. So that just happens. Um, but yes, when it comes to an old instrument, it's a real shame to me if they don't get if they don't get used. You know, I mean, I have I have it's you know it's silly how many guitars I have because it's you know you, you're you're a guitar player. People give them to you, you have them. Companies give them to you. You know, you just you get a guitar a year or something, and all of a sudden you got fifty guitars, and um, you can't play them all. You know, you try to play the ones that matter. <laughs> but, okay, so how do you decide on what to play? Do you know each guitar and its sound? 
I mean, and, and you say, okay, I want to play this song. Oh, yeah, I got to get the Les Paul out. Or how does that work? Well, I mean, the yeah. The, if you're going to the studio, I'll take a handful, you know, you know, or a small handful, depending on what, if most sessions I'm going to, I know what, I know what I'm going to do and I'm, I'll take that. I'll take what I need to do that. Um, but every now and then you're, you're going and you can be creative and say, you know, people say, bring, bring some stuff. But yeah, you just, I mean, when I'm home and I'm doing a session for somebody, it's like, yeah, I have a real luxury because I have them, they're all here and I have, different amps and whatnot so i can listen to a song and go oh this needs that i think and um uh yeah it's a real luxury was there ever a time where you questioned being a musician or doing what you do oh for sure yeah yeah real recently the pandemic had had that you know we're wondering i guess i mean because you weren't doing any gigs yeah for me um everything yeah, everything I was doing just stopped, fell apart, you know. Um, yeah, so you, and you, at first it seemed like, oh, it's going to be a few months, and then it seems like, oh, it's going to be a year. Like, oh, well, what are we going to do? Because, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so then, yeah, I'm questioning, you know, how is this going to look when we come, how do we come out of this? What's What do we do when we come back? You know, are we going to be able to come back? Are we going to, you know, are people going to, yeah, so it's all been working out, you know, and new Orleans again, you know, stepped up and took care of their musicians. The people here, um, had porch concerts and they turned, you know, there's a handful of people that turned their large backyards into legitimate outdoor music venues where they did permitting and the temperature checks and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, New Orleans stepped up again in a big way. There's a bunch of places that st- opened up as outdoor venues. I was wondering so more that, like when you were when you're starting out and not being able to get gigs and not being able to afford guitars, and then all of a sudden you find uh, yourself looking up and seeing fifty guitars in your studio. Well, that's that's funny, but you know, from I will say this: I never really. I never really thought about doing, I mean, doing anything really different for, you know, it always worked out. I, you know, the, the biggest decision, I think when you're young and you're going to try to be a musician or an artist or something like do something that you love instead of, you know, some lucrative thing, you, you, you just have to, you have to figure out a, how to live without making a lot of money. And then, you know, be how to be happy living without a lot of money and then see um how to attract a partner <laughs> who will get in that game with you um so yeah i've been extremely lucky in all three of those because um yeah i figured out early that a i i wasn't really i wanted to be a musician so that meant uh i wasn't going to care about money and you know, I've been lucky enough to just kind of have enough, you know, it's worked out. And you've seen the world. I've seen the world. Um, you know, I, yeah, I just, I'm really lucky. Yeah, man, I've got a house and I've got a girl and I've got 50 guitars and 
cats and dogs. <laughs> okay, I've got cats and dogs, and I'm, you know, I've got a lot of beautiful plants out here in New Orleans, and it's, you know. And, and even just the, the story you told about the guitar, the fact that somebody would give you that guitar, that and that guitar that you, you're inspired by to write more songs. I mean, I don't know how you put a price on something like that. You can't. It's a trip, man. It's, and, I, you know, it's it's real recent. It's just in the last couple months. So I'm still grappling with all that. Like, you know, it's, it's a, it's, um, yeah, it's generosity on a, on a, on a huge scale. Yeah. It's crazy. So. Well, I look forward to whatever that music that's going to come out of this. And um, I've been listening to some of your solo stuff and been really enjoying it. And it's oh, a, I really appreciate you taking this time, especially at such short notice. But, um, it, you know, I, I, I've known you, I've seen you play for a number of years, and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that I get a chance to get to know you a little bit. Excellent. Well, we up in, uh, we're going to be in Buffalo. That's close to you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, <laughs> Lynn told me about it. I'm yeah, we'll sh- be up in, in Buffalo with Lynn uh, in June, doing, yeah. a little, doing a little tour with Lynn up there. Buffalo and Rochester and... Uh, um, and the sandstone's up by that way too. We're going up to Maine and uh, New Jersey and stuff this summer too. So, okay, well, but nothing in Toronto yet. Nah, Toronto's nothing a tough nut to crack. Yeah, so beautiful though. I love it there. When you said um, that you were in New Orleans the last three summers, I know that people in Austin talk about living there and trying to get out and tour during the summer because it's so hot. Yeah, I presume it must be pretty nasty in the summer there, and that it is, well, it is but it's kind of nice. Too. <laughs> you, know, you, um, you know, things go slower. You do you do what you got to do early in the day, or or you know in the evening, and um, yeah, there's kind of a nice a nice thing about the summer here. It it, it is hot. It, it is hot, but. I remember being there in May, and I was just—I was stunned at how humid and hot it was. Yeah, I've—I've I've been building a fence the last few days, and so I'm, you know, I stop work about one o'clock usually. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for doing this. Thank um, you. It's been a thrill. I really appreciate this. Awesome. Appreciate you. Mm-hmm.